the next change is going to be lowering the age. More supply, high demand. Everybody's saying, yes, we're, now it's my turn, and I still couldn't get it. And changing rules, a temperature check as South Florida vaccinates. They're talking about ballot harvesting, about the drop boxes. Improving mail-in voting or making it harder. Florida lawmakers consider election law changes. You know, this is something that is certainly going to cost taxpayers money. What for and at what cost? Capital Dispatch bills on the fast track in Tallahassee with South Florida lawmakers in the thick of it. Manufactured mosquitoes coming to Monroe County and there are less female mosquitoes to actually do the breeding. The fears and the facts for the Florida Keys. It's the big news of the week, all live, all here, this week in South Florida. Good morning, glad you could join us. I'm Michael Putney. I'm Glenna Milberg, a packed hour ahead, and we begin today with the effort to change the rules for casting your vote. That elections bill on the fast track, even after what was, by all accounts, one of the smoothest elections in the country. Florida's Republican leadership insists that tightening the vote by mail rules would make elections more secure. Democrats, however, say changing the rules mid-game just creates needless hurdles. You know, rarely do you hear a completely nonpartisan voice in this debate. And for that very thing, we turn to Miami-Dade Supervisor of Elections, Christina White. She comes to this issue strictly as administrators of the rules. Christina, great to see you this morning. Thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Thank Christina. you so much. My pleasure. We are glad you are here. And this is not a partisan political discussion with Christina White. It is a factual discussion. And Christina, let me begin with a basic premise. I think everyone would agree that the election last fall here and throughout the state was the best that Florida has had in decades. So the question arises, if you've got something working right, why mess with it? Why fix something that's not broken? Well, I would agree with that. That's my same question. Um, as the supervisor of elections, my job is to ensure fair and accurate elections for all Miami-Dade County voters, regardless of party affiliation. And I think that Senate Bill 90 really is anything but fair. There are more than 404,000 voters in Miami-Dade that have a vote-by-mail request on file right now and are expecting to receive ballots in upcoming municipal elections and then for the 2022 primary and general election. So this bill would wipe those voters from that list um, and require them to re-enroll if they want to receive a ballot. And um, to me, that places an unnecessary burden on these voters. So that's one component of this bill. And what was really interesting is I pulled the, the memo that you wrote to Miami-Dade's mayor for a presentation this week. And, you know, my take on your memo as it's factual, it, it describes the practical impacts of what this would do. And it's not total opposition. There is a component, there's three components to this bill. One of them you actually supported. Um, and I, I want to go through the support first because what, the, uh, what you seem to support in here was the extra time that is actually already in play because of the governor's executive order in COVID to give ballot counting a head start. So that's what happened this year. It worked really well for your planning and logistics. That's part of this bill. So, so that's something that you can get behind, according to this memo. Right. So there's three sections of that bill. Uh, the one is, is again, wiping you know voters from the list and having them re-enroll. The second is that the once you are on, the request will expire after every general election 
as opposed to two. But there is one very positive section, and, and that does just simply give give supervisors of elections throughout the state more time to open and begin the processing of vote-by-mail ballots. We send ballots out about 35 days prior to the election, and by law right now we can't begin opening and processing them until 22 days prior. So we're really holding on to them, waiting for that 22nd day, um, which really doesn't make any sense. We really should be able to start the day that we begin receiving them back to the department, especially with the growth and the volume. Um, over, you know, 500,000 people voted by mail in the presidential election in 2020. And so anytime that we can get a head start on our work, uh, it's better for operations, it's better for results coming out quicker. Um, and so, yes, that's ve I'm very supportive of that one section. Yeah. Uh, Christina, let's get to the sort of the hot button part of this proposed bill, Senate Bill 90, which uh, I think you have said, frankly, in an interview Friday that you oppose and it would change the way mail-in ballots now are distributed, as we all know, it is now for two election cycles over the course of four years. Now it would change it to one election cycle. The Senate sponsor of this bill says he wants to restart the uh, election process, improve it. Would this improve it? think so. I, I, you know, as you said in the opening, I, I think this law works very well, in my opinion. I don't think it needs to be changed. And, and I think the reset is already there. So the law says that your request is valid for two general elections. So these 404,000 people that I mentioned, they just requested a ballot going into the 2020 election cycle. So they got those ballots voted by mail very happily. Those requests right now will stay in place until 2022. So for me, that is very recent. I, I, I think the reset is already there the way that the law is written. Yeah, and a follow-up here, as you well know, five municipalities in Miami-Dade County, Miami, Miami Beach, Hialeah, Miami, Virginia Gardens, Homestead, are having municipal elections between September and November. You've got 107,000 voters in those five cities who get mail by vote by mail ballots. Uh, what's going to happen to them if this bill passes? Those are the people that are the most heavily impacted by this. So this bill would go into effect on July 1st, 2021. Those 107,000 voters have elections coming up in the few months that precede that date. And so the, it's going to be difficult for us to notify these voters, give them time to re-enroll. Um, the lead time is, is, is very tight. So yes, th those are the, the voters that, you know, if, if you receive a letter from, if you live in one of those cities and you receive a letter from us telling you to re-enroll, take that seriously because it's, uh, the lead time is going to be quite short on that. And then there are the dollars and cents involved. The, the actual legislative bill analysis says, quote, additional costs are likely. And you yourself this week and in the memo talk about this is kind of an unfunded mandate for your office, postage and collating and reaching out and awareness campaigns. What, what kind of cost does this add to your office that the legislature isn't paying for in this bill? So I'm estimating the cost to be somewhere around $400,000. Um, the cost pretty straightforward. It's the printing and postage to mail out to these 404,000 voters, uh, return postage on the forms that we'll be sending them. And, you know, of course, when you're talking about processing hundreds of thousands of requests, I have to hire temporary workers to, to assist with the processing of that. So, you know, it's, it's going to cost money. Um, 
but most importantly, this is for, on, on my end, this is for the voter, right? Like, I, I just want to make sure that the voter is able to have their request stay on file um, and vote as they were expecting to. These people are expecting ballots from my office. And uh, so I, I, I believe the law should remain as it is. Yeah, Christina, an ancillary issue here, one raised by Governor DeSantis this past week, is drop boxes where vote by mail ballots uh, are dropped off at drop boxes around the county, mainly at the early voting sites. Uh, has there been any problem at all with the drop boxes in Miami Dade? No, in fact, our voters received these drop boxes very well. We were happy to implement them. We had 33 throughout the county. They were staffed by um, an elections worker the entire time. And uh, over 160,000 voters used a drop box. We liked it because I think it really gave the voters that little extra confidence that they needed, right? Some people were hesitant about putting their ballot in the mail, especially with all of the, the talks that were going on about the USPS right. nationwide. And so we implemented them very well, and we're planning to continue using them moving forward. You know, you you have been held up as the gold standard. You know that. I'm not telling you anything that you don't know. Um, people just really raved about the performance of your office and the planning that you put into it and the flawless logistics of the election. Uh, you are working in a county where there are components in the law about ballot harvesting, making it hard for people or making it illegal, actually, for people to collect ballots, absentee ballots, and turn them all in in bulk. But the entire state doesn't have those kind of municipal laws. And so I think some of the proponents of this bill like the fact that there is that security for maybe other counties upstate that don't necessarily outlaw someone collecting absentee ballots and vote-by-mail ballots and turning them in. Um, your perspective on that? Well, ballot harvesting is a term that is used to discuss people who are collecting ballots, right? Collecting voted ballots and bringing them to the supervisor of elections office. This particular bill in its current format does not address ballot harvesting. This bill is actually talking about people who want to receive a ballot uh, and putting that request on file, right? So this is actually, um, I guess, sort of reducing access to people receiving ballots. Harvesting is a completely different element altogether. Um, but you're right. In, in Miami-Dade County, there is a code requirement that prohibits that. In fact, nobody can be in possession of two ballots other than their own on specific days leading up to the election. The rest yeah. of the state does not have that in Florida statute. I know that's something that there are people that, that want that. Um, but again, th this bill does not address that. Yeah. Christina White, we are so glad you joined us this morning, and uh, you are the gold standard for elections. Thanks for the work you and your staff do. Thanks, Christina. Thank you. All right, the vote-by-mail bill we were just talking about is only one element in a hectic legislative session. Uh, in Tallahassee, from Tallahassee, we get an inside look from South Florida lawmakers who are on those front lines live when we come back. The state legislature got down to hard work this week, advancing several controversial bills that have sparked intense debate, and that vote-by-mail bill is just one of them. And there are bills that zero in on protests and limit your right to sue for COVID negligence, and one that might overturn the voice of voters in Key West. State Senator Annette Tadeo is a Democrat from Southwest Miami-Dade. State Representative Chibla Marca is a Republican from Northeast Broward, both friends of 
of This Week in South Florida. Hey. Great to see you both. Hey, and good thank morning. you for your time this weekend. Good morning. Great to see you both. Uh, Chip Lamarca, you just heard Christina White, the election supervisor in Miami-Dade, talk about why she thinks that Senate Bill 90, this bill that would change the vote-by-mail regulations, is probably not needed. What's your view? I appreciate uh, Supervisor White's uh, good work down in Miami-Dade, but remember I'm in Broward County where uh, we uh, had to accept the resignation of Dr. Snipes and the governor had to make an appointment and uh, we, get, we got through a great election in Broward this time. Uh, but uh, you know, I'm looking at this bill and trying to make a, an assessment. As you know, Michael, I'm uh, somewhat independent and don't always vote with my party, but I think ballot security and election security is very important. Uh, when I was on the county commission, we voted to extend uh, early voting. We also voted to pay for the postage for uh, mail-in ballots. So I trust the voters, but I want to make sure that the voters are the ones that have the ballots. You know, something that we, we didn't talk about in the last segment is the county, county commissioner, Raquel Regalado, had put forth this suggestion, well, maybe this bill, if it passes, should just start later, maybe start in July instead of immediately to pave the way for the voters in the cities that Michael had mentioned. Annette, do you, um, are, do you back any of this? Could you see a way forward and, and tightening voting, even though there hasn't been a problem yet, and, and finding that solution so that everybody gets what they want? Um, as vice chair of ethics and elections in the Senate, I uh, objected to this bill uh, quite strongly. And frankly, it's because it seems like it's um, all of a sudden the Democrats have gotten really good at vote by mail, which historically has been the Republicans. And now that we have the re-election of Governor DeSantis, uh, now they want to crack down on all these people voting by mail. What a concept in a democracy. We should be encouraging everybody to vote, not afraid. And, and look, fair and square, Donald Trump won Florida, and, uh, and that's just what it is. But they couldn't even tell us of one instance, one instance when there was a problem with uh, voting by mail in the whole state of Florida, let alone in South Florida, where the majority of the Democrats are. So this is all about suppressing the vote. And, and frankly, I agree with Raquel Regalado. And I actually think it's a void of a contract because they have signed, the voters that signed up have signed and said they're going to get it for two years. And now does that open each of these supervisors to a lawsuit because they're not fulfilling on that contract? And furthermore, it's an unfunded mandate because the bill has zero money behind it. And every single county, as much as a half a million dollars, is going to have to be spent, for example, in Miami-Dade County. Let me just ask you a follow-up to something you said. If, if this comes to pass and the supervisors of elections have to now redo all of the, sending out all of the ballot requests, all the voters have to request ballots again, it's a mess all the way around. But doesn't it affect voters who are Democrat and voters who are Republican the same way? 100%. It affects both. But the fact is, this last election, we saw a huge number of uh, Democrats vote by mail, mainly because of COVID and Democrats just really made it an effort to get people to, to come out to vote by mail because we were concerned and, and a lot more Democrats were concerned about standing in line and the mask and these kinds of things. So again, we can't find one instance where there was any problem. Governor DeSantis went on national and national media tour talking about how Florida should be the model for the nation. Well, we agree. It went really well. We didn't win. Let's be real. But this is all about his reelection and making sure he suppresses Democratic votes.
Yeah, uh, uh, Chip Lamarca, let me ask you about a bill that went through a committee this week up in Tallahassee in the House, I believe. It would provide legal immunity to businesses that provided good services uh, during the pandemic. And somebody who believed that they were treated negligently, that they had some harm done to them by the business, now it would be much harder for those people to sue. They've changed, the bill would change the standard of evidence from the preponderance of the evidence to clear and convincing. So it would be harder to sue a business where you believe you may have, you know, had some harm from uh, their actions. Uh, why is this needed? Why would you, do you support this? I supported it, but uh, Michael, it's important to point out that it was uh, a bipartisan bill. Eight eight members of the Democrat Party in the Florida House supported it, and I was very, very proud to, to vote on something that had uh, good bipartisan support. Really, we have to look out for our businesses as we come back, and our and uh, and our consumers. But at the end of the day, uh, the last thing I want to see is anyone take advantage of uh, all of the other issues that a business has to go through to stay open, and folks can patronize it. But uh, last thing I want to see is uh, more opportunity for uh, certain litigation to attack our small businesses. That's what makes up our community. And uh, I did support the bill. I was proud to support the bill, and I was proud to vote with eight Democrats. So what is it in the bill, then, if, you, uh, if this bill gives this liability protection to businesses? And now there are two bills, one for businesses and government and educational facilities and religious facilities, and the other for hospitals and nursing homes. All of these entities in these two bills get this protection. What is it that protects the consumer from being able to file a legitimate grievance for harm? Look at the end of the day. If someone walks in the front door of a small business and say it's 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 our business or a small restaurant or small retail shop, and that business is not being compliant, not being uh, following CDC guidelines, not being uh, health and safety uh, aware for their patrons and their their customers, you know they should uh, be susceptible to a lawsuit or they should be in, in that situation. But we want to make sure that. Uh, one one in a hundred year pandemic doesn't open the door for you know litigation that uh, really is you know, could cause runaway issues. The, Florida is doing better now than they were just two years ago uh, when we were called a legal hellhole, unfortunately. And uh, from attacks and 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 regulatory environment, we're we're a great place to come and people are coming here. The last thing we want to do is have someone open a business and then be uh, exposed to runaway litigation for a, a, you know a number of number of issues. And it was pointed out that there were very few cases so far. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean that the uh, you know that the very smart attorneys in, in the state of Florida aren't looking at this as a as a cottage industry like so many other things. So I, I think this is just a you know a protection to make sure that during the pandemic, if someone followed the CDC guidelines and they were looking out for their patients and their customers, that uh, they won't be hit with uh, false lawsuits based on the pandemic. Yeah, Senator Senator Tadeo, let me ask you to comment about this because on the nursing homes, hospitals, medical providers. Uh, over the last 11 months, uh, Local 10 News, other media have reported instances where these long-term care facilities especially were very lax in their rules. They allowed vendors, other people who came in who brought uh, uh, the coronavirus with them. Uh, under this law, if it's passed, uh, the people who lost a loved one would really have no avenue or it would be very hard for them to go and sue one of these nursing homes. 
Absolutely. And as a matter of fact, as a small business owner myself, I actually understand um, some of the good qualities of this bill. But when we asked in committee, for example, this past week in the Senate, even to add a simple sign uh, to let people know that, uh, you know, they're walking into a place that's taking advantage of the statue and they're not liable should you catch COVID. I mean, even something as simple as that was not acceptable uh, to the to to the ones uh, proposing the bill. So I, I just really think that we should we're trying to fix something that, first of all, doesn't exist. Representative Lamarca just said that there has been really no cases. We only know of one in particular where a gentleman died in uh, Miami Beach uh, uh, because the public wouldn't let him wear the mask. Uh, but, but we do not know of many cases. And frankly, um, let's not try to fix something that we don't have a problem with. But at the same time, let's not go so far that as you brought up, Michael, we have the issue of the nursing homes and people worried about their loved ones and finding out information. And even you, the media, haven't been able to get a lot of information. So let's not go too far in protecting small business and then in the process protect all these big businesses when they're truly uh, at fault. There are uh, bills about ports. There are bills about protests. We get into all of that when we come right back. Sit tight, we'll see you in two. We are glad you are with us today on This Week in South Florida. We are speaking with two prominent members of the state legislature, which is in session, State Senator Annette Tadeo of South Miami-Dade and Chip Lamarca, state representative from Lighthouse Point. Uh, Chip Lamarca, let me ask you about a bill that has been introduced. This is very early. Uh, Carl Hyacin wrote a great column about it. Today's Miami Herald, uh, the bill would nullify the results of a referendum and election in Key West last fall, where Key West voters said they wanted to limit the number and size of cruise ships that visit Key West on any given day. Apparently, people got a little tired of 6,000 people, you know, trudging up and down Duval Street uh, during the day, uh, disrupting their lives. But now there is a bill that would overturn, nullify, uh, that election. Uh, where do you stand on that? Well, Michael, I, I have to start out by saying that I, I saw that bill in my committee, uh, the vice chair of tourism, infrastructure and energy. And I thought from the beginning um, that the bill lacked some consideration for the other 14 seaports in the state of Florida. So separate from the referendum, what the bill did um, is would have attacked the other 14 seaports that were not run by municipalities. And what we did is uh, work bipartisan uh, legislation in that, basically amendments uh, to try to fix the bill. And what we did is pull out Port Everglades, my home port, Port Miami, uh, Senator Tadeo's home port, and a dozen other ports out of the state of Florida uh, from the bill. I don't know if it'll get through the next committee or not. It had a lot of uh, consternation and concern. Uh, a lot of points were made that the bill sponsor, as much as uh, he had his reasons for running it, uh, might not have taken an account uh, when, the, when they brought it forward, but ultimately it left uh, tourism infrastructure as probably a, a better bill. And if it gets yeah. through the next stop, yeah. ultimately well, I'll see a know, house floor. I don't know Chip, if I'll support it or not. Chip, you, you, you're, you're talking about process here, which is fine. You've got to be involved in that. I mean, bottom line, the will of the people of Key West was expressed in a vote they said, we don't want these big cruise ships, especially <laughs> don't want the ones that pollute, you know, and now the will of the people may be nullified. Uh, I mean, wh where's the sense in that? 
Well, there's a lot, <clears throat> a lot of things went into that. First thing I did on that bill is speak to Representative Mooney, who represents uh, House District 120, which is all the Florida Keys, got his thoughts on it. Um, I, I agree with you that the home, home rule is important and the ability to self-govern is important. Uh, ultimately, there are, there were some issues there where, quite honestly, the Port of uh, Key West and uh, those peers have taken a lot of state money and federal money and infrastructure. Um, I agree with you on parts of it. Parts of it really would have destroyed the state's port system, which is uh, where we get our fuel, our our cargo, and as well as tourism. So um, we're going to keep an eye on it in its next committee stop. And if I get to see it again, like I said, um, I don't know that I could support it. Uh, what we did in our committee is try to make it the best it could be for the rest of the ports in the state of Florida. I know your your thought is on you know the municipality of Key West, and I have some serious thoughts about that as well. But uh, we can get deeper into the fact that folks in, in uh, that, that run a business in Key West a lot of times don't live on that key. They live on another key, and they had no ability to vote on that as well. And Ed, I, can you um, do you? I want you to weigh in on that. But do you know the whole point of that bill to begin with? If all of the port, the big ports, and the big municipalities really are taken question, out. But I would like to weigh in in the sense that um, you know I think Tallahassee just has a hearing problem. Um, you know, our voters keep telling us what they want us to do. We put it out to a referendum, what a concept in a democracy to ask people what they think. Um, they vote, they tell us what they think, and then it goes to Tallahassee. For example, the minimum wage overwhelmingly passed. What are we doing in Tallahassee? We're trying to say, oh, people who were formerly incarcerated shouldn't make $15 an hour. Uh, people who are under 21 shouldn't make $15 an hour. Come on, the voters know what they're voting for. They're smart. Let's treat them as the adults that they are when they vote and let's stop pretending like they don't know any better and we in Tallahassee are somehow going to fix it. We have a hearing problem in Tallahassee. Okay, Chip, maybe um, maybe you know, what, what was the point of writing that bill if it weren't directed toward Key West's port? What, what, was, what was the thinking behind that? Well, my, again, my thought from uh, after speaking to the bill sponsor and have the opportunity early on, but we had a lot of words in committee. Um, I don't know what, what the impetus obviously was. Uh, it, it was aimed towards Key West, but why would you drag in the other 14 seaports in the state of Florida when so much of our economy coming out of the coronavirus comes from our seaports? I, I spent eight years in the county commission and Port Everglades is under our Broward County Commission. It's a tremendous economic engine. I, I had major issues with that bill, like I said, and what, what our fight at that point was was to pull out uh, as much of this as possible and deal with the the root root issue, and that is uh, apparently that that House member has uh, some type of issue with Key West. Uh, you know, to to you both, your experienced legislators, uh, Chip, you were on the Broward County Commission for years, and and that you've been involved in government. Maybe people at home don't understand the early days of the state legislature are sort of like the Broadway show that has tryouts in Philly or Boston. <laughs> They make all these changes that the show gets to Broadway. It can be quite different. So all the bills we're talking about, if they succeed, will be changed before, you know, the end of April. Uh, my point is, is that the people of Florida are really concerned about COVID, about taxes, about insurance costs, uh, and so on. Where is the discussion up there about those things? Well, Michael, that I mean, you made a great point. You're talking about COVID and taxes and our economy and attacking 14, uh, 15 of our Florida seaports is not the way to come out of a, a you know a pandemic and an economic crisis. Um, what? If you give me a second, my my whole uh, slate of bills really is about economic development and bringing jobs 
back to Florida, keeping Florida's revenue, whether it's online sales tax, the Qualified Targeted Industries uh, program with DEO, bringing business here. And I'm also sponsoring a, uh, a bipartisan sports wagering bill that includes one of our House members from Broward, uh, Representative Omfroy. And ultimately, if this passes, we'll be able to keep these revenues in Florida and not send them to Europe or the Caribbean or other uh, U.S. states. Annette, for time, you get the last word on that. Go ahead. Well, I uh, rather than talk about all the bipartisan, but I know Chip Lamarca and I work on really strongly. I'm going to talk about our priorities. Uh, our governor has said the priorities, and they're not COVID. They're not vaccines. They're not, uh, you know, really, they, they seem to be, you know, meat issues with regards to the base. Uh, when it comes to, you know, this bill about uh, protesting, it's outrageous. Uh, all kinds of, of bills that really have nothing to do with the emergency we're currently dealing with. And that should be our priority. And I think Representative Lamarca and I would agree and work together on that. But instead, we're fighting these fights that have nothing to do with regular people and what they're dealing with right now. Unemployment being number one. We should be fixing it. And instead, there's not one bill in the House of Representatives to fix the broken unemployment system and to fix the fact that the law just sucks, pardon my word. The, the worst part of politics is politics. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you both. And Tadeo, Chip Lamarca, great thank to you. see you. And we do value your time this weekend. We do indeed. All right, more supply, more demand, and vaccine rules changing at times by the hour and by the week. We get some answers from the vaccinators, and that is live, and that is next. South Florida got a shot in the arm this week with more vaccine supply, more places to get it, and more people newly eligible. That is all to the good, but there is some confusion about different eligibility rules at different vaccination sites, and some of those rules seem to change day by day, even by the hour. For some answers, we're going to turn to Dr. Aldo Calvo. He, Calvo, he is the medical director of ambulatory services for Broward Health, responsible for managing the vaccine site they run at Inter-American CF Stadium in Fort Lauderdale. Dr. Calvo, good afternoon. Thanks for being good afternoon, here. Michael. Thank you. We, we are so glad to see you. First, give us a, a, a report. How are things going at your vaccination site? Well, going really well. We actually have three sites now, the Inter-Miami CF uh, stadium, as you mentioned, at Lockhart Park. We also provide vaccinations at Broward Health Medical Center and Broward Health North. Uh, we're doing very well. We're trying to provide easy access for those who are eligible for vaccinations. And um, again, try to get to some sort of normalcy in the near future. Dr. Calvo, you know, it, it stands to say things are going very well with vaccines for a lot of people. We in the news report on the problems and what's not going well. And there are a significant amount of people we hear from who are so confused about the rules that are yeah. different at the federal sites, different at the state sites. If they show up one place, they don't get the vaccine that they could have gotten if they showed up at another site. Is there a simple answer to that? I wish there was. I can only talk about Broad Health's uh, initiative and what we've done, um, and we've tried to make it as simple as possible as a process. So for those who are age 65 and older, for those who are healthcare workers and their staff, for those who are EMS pro professionals, those sworn officers 50 years of age and older, firefighters 50 years of age and older, 
K through 12 school teachers and their staff, 50 and older, and then those who are 18 to 64 years of age with at least one, if not more, uh, underlying medical conditions, you can go on to our broadhealth.org website and uh, fill out an application for uh, a shot. So Broward Health has been vaccinating people of all ages, just like other hospitals, for a long time because because that is actually in both the state and federal rules uh, that people who, of all ages with comorbidities or different underlying problems, doctors have discretions, hospitals have discretion in, to vaccinate those people. So now we get to younger and younger people. Um, some of the children's hospitals are administering vaccines to younger people, and there is a lot of concern about that, and especially about the long-term effects. What, what can you tell us about that? Well, what I can tell you is that those who are 18 to 64 years of age with at least one, if not more, um, underlying medical conditions such as hypertension, Down syndrome, cancer, diabetes, they too are at increased risk for developing severe COVID-like illness, which includes hospitalizations, ICU admissions, intubations, and death. They need to be protected, and we need to provide vaccinations in an easy way for them as well. Yeah, uh, Dr. Calvo, uh, we all know, and thank goodness, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine has been shipped. It's on the market. Uh, do you have it there at Broward Health? Uh, are you administrating, uh, administering the J&J vaccine? We're not administering the J&J vaccine. We haven't received any uh, allotments as of yet. What we are giving is the two messenger RNAs, Pfizer and Moderna. So it's a two dose, as we all know, and we're providing uh, upon registration. Uh, two appointments to get uh, the first and the second dose. Yeah, let me ask you to sort of give us a macro view. Uh, we have seen that on Friday, uh, there were reported in the state 5,900 cases of COVID-19, as opposed to last July when there were 14 and 15,000 cases reported in, in Florida. Thousands of people were hospitalized. ICU uh, units were really, uh, you know, at the height of the capacity. Uh, things appear to be quite a bit better. Is that true at Broward uh, Health? Well, I think things are a little bit better with regard to hospitalizations. As of this past Friday, we had less than 100 uh, hospitalizations without our four hospitals. Uh, we do have other therapies like the monoclonal antibodies that we're providing for individuals with mild to moderate COVID disease. I think that also helps. And of course, the rampant uh, tick of vaccinations as well, our three sites, I think that also helps. But the concern that we have, though, is amongst other healthcare systems are the variants that exist now, mm -hmm. and particularly in Florida, with the UK variant being predominantly here more than any other state, and uh, what that will look like in the near future. So we continue to implore that the community continue to use mitigation practices of wearing a face mask, some social distancing, of course, and frequent hand washing, and make an appointment to get your vaccines. I'd like to get your perspective on something that has sort of this political tinge to it. Um, and we're really looking for some facts here. Facts are that the black and Latino communities are not being vaccinated as high a percentage for the communities as the white community. That's a very general statement, but very concerning to a lot of people where we yeah. live. Why is that? Because there has been a concerted effort by the department, State Department of Emergency Management, to put the vaccine into as many places, hard to reach places, as possible. What is the hang-up with getting the entire population, race and ethnicity aside, vaccinated at really good numbers? Well, you know, this is uh, of utmost importance to ourselves as well, because as a healthcare professional, what I want for my patients is 
great access to care and great quality care. And um, we know that certain groups, particularly minorities, uh, uninsured and underinsured, uh, healthcare inequities exist. And it's very challenging for these individuals to go to see a physician like myself and get a vaccine or get a prescription to go to a vaccination site and get a vaccine. So we really need to reduce these barriers and provide easier access for vaccinations. And that includes providing more multiple sites is what we're doing in Broward Health with our stadium site and our two hospitals located within the communities, but also partnering with local community leaders uh, in private and faith-based institutions uh, to see if we can provide education, particularly to those who are vaccine hesitant and provide ample education as well as to the efficacy and the safety of vaccines. I think if we do this in partnership with our community as we are doing in Broward Health, we'll be more successful. Well, we hope you are successful Successful with that so critical. Dr. Aldo Cabo, thank you very much uh, for being with us and thanks for the good work you and Broward Health are doing. Thank you, Michael and Glenda, appreciate it. Thanks right. so much. And up next, genetically modified mosquitoes are on their way to the Florida Keys. The facts and the fears about the plan to eradicate mosquito-borne disease. We'll talk about it when we come back. The Florida Keys is weeks away now from a mosquito season like it has never seen. The plan to release genetically modified mosquitoes is meant to eventually stop mosquito breeding and stop the diseases that mosquitoes spread like Zika and dengue. I've had dengue. It is awful. Barry Ray is the executive director of the Florida Keys Environmental Coalition and a critic of the plan set to launch next month. He joins us right there from Isla Mirada, where I think we all wish we were there with you. Good morning, I almost said. Good afternoon. Great to see you. Very and glad for, being, for being on the on the show. Thank you. Thank you guys for inviting me. This so, is a very important subject, and yeah. and what people should realize right from the beginning, this is not a Florida Keys issue. It's a nationwide issue. Mosquitoes travel. These mosquitoes are called Aedes aegypti. And look, this is a very concerning subject. Mosquitoes transfer diseases. And I'm so sorry to hear, Michael, that you were victim of this. Yeah, I was. Because that's a painful, painful disease. They call that the breakbone fever. And, and I know why. <laughs> I, I have personal friends that have had it too. And, you know, we all want to battle mosquitoes and we all want to fix this problem. But this method, the way that they have introduced this product is in a basically it's obfuscated you don't know what's inside of this mosquito there are zero independent scientists that have corroborated anything that this vendor has said now we've had years and years and years to do this and they've avoided they obfuscate things and look if you look at their actual history they have a very dubious past where they released mosquitoes genetically modified mosquitoes without telling anybody in many places that itself is very reprehensible all right but so barry whoa let me ask failed. you let me ask you a question yeah, or two mm -hmm. So um, they, they have a track record. Oxitec is the name of the company. There is a track record uh, in Brazil Absolutely. and Cayman Islands. To your point, people there might have not known what was happening. That is not the case in the Keys. There has been a years of awareness uh, mm -hmm. in the Keys. But the track record is a good one for what they're trying to do. So the, the question here is, talking about dengue and Zika and other mosquito-borne diseases, is this kind of sterilization program, I guess, is, is what you can call it with these GMO, the modified mosquitoes. It is, is this better, perhaps, than spraying pesticides uh, mm -hmm. daily, which happens, or, or contracting those diseases? 
it, can you can you come to terms with the fact that this might be a fix, although maybe not one that's perfect, better than what's happening now? Well, let, let, let's be very clear. That's a fallacy. That's not true. Why? You're not going to reduce the spring, right? That does not happen. They don't even promote this. Just ask them. I mean, we, we have a very clear understanding of what Oxytec's doing. And it, to say that they've had some type of success, they failed everywhere they've been. Go look at the Cayman. We have 127 pages of emails from the chief scientists down there that show they actually cheated on their science results. They still promote. They had a 96% suppression there. They never achieved above 61% suppression. Now tell me how they got that math to oh, work. That, that's a, that's a good can. question, and that's not information yeah. that we have seen. So we'll follow up on that. But we also well, exactly. have, what, hold on, hold on. We can the, in, in the state of Florida, you have mm -hmm. sign-offs from this, from the CDC, from the EPA, right. from the Department of Health, from the state sure. agriculture. I mean, th this has been looked at by the overseers of the state and, and nationally, right. and mm -hmm. they said it was okay. Yeah, they did, and they didn't look at it. There's been no, I'll restate what I said to begin uh, with, is that there is zero independent scientific investigation into this product. You're taking the vendor's claims and the vendor's science and reading it and saying, oh, that looks good to me, and you're going on. That is wrong. That's not how any scientist proceeds. I, I'm, I'm a scientist. Look, I, I have a master's degree in electrical engineering. I never planned on being a biologist or a genetic engineer. But I can tell you very clearly that on the 18th of March at 5.30 p.m., Isla Murata is going to have four experts. One of them is the head of genetic engineering at NC State. Another is a microbiology professor at Harvard who left Yale and now is at Harvard. Uh, and, and two others that are going to present and explain that they do not want these mosquitoes released under the uh, review that the EPA did because it's insignificant and it's insufficient in order to safeguard uh, you know, our public health interest and our ecosystem interest. That is what's important. These are recognized experts. Can right? you, can you just give me. that, for, for everybody listening who might be interested, could you just give that information on the 18th? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's the Village of Isla Mirada uh, uh, Council meeting, and it will be at 5.30 p.m. They have a hybrid meeting, so there can be some people in presence, but most people are online, much mm -hmm. like, you know, this is. All right. Well, and, and we, so, will, we will, Barry, excuse me, we will see to it that we try to cover that. Sounds uh, really important. Yeah. Barry, thank you very much. We appreciate your time. Could and, I make a few more points before you go? No, we are out of time. I beg your pardon. All right. I'll, I'll tell you what, if you, if you, because of, because of our time, I don't want you to feel shortchanged, but I want to, I want to connect with you right after our program and we'll make that happen. Okay. Sounds great. Thank okay. You so thanks, much. Barry. We'll be right back. Before we leave you today, a word about the guests who should be on this show but are not. Specifically, Senators Marco Rubio and Rick Scott. We have invited them every week for months. Oh, they are always too busy. I personally asked Senator Rubio last October to come on the show and talk about his voting record, the issues facing Florida and the nation. He quickly said, sure, he would be glad to appear. Just contact my press aide. Well, we have every week for the last six months. And every time there's just something that prevents Senator Rubio from appearing, although he appears regularly on Fox News and other TV and radio stations across the state. Well, good for them, bad for us. By refusing to appear on This Week in South Florida, Senator Rubio is refusing to speak to you, his constituents. 
If that bothers you, we would urge you to contact Senator Rubio's office. Tell them you would like to see him on this program. Same is true with Senator Scott, who told me months ago he'd be glad to speak with us if we came to Washington. Hey, Senator, satellite interviews work just fine. Anyway, we want to fix the problem. Senators, come on down. Be our guests. That is our, that's my perspective. Thank you for being with us. Remember, stay informed, get involved.